Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's uh, turn to the book of Joel tonight. So I was on Google this morning, and I typed in end of the world. And I got 770 million hits. So it showed me there's a lot of people thinking about it. The end of the age, the end of the world as we know it. There's even a complete study, a whole area of last things, the Greek eschata, eschatology, a study of end times, end things. The book of Joel deals with end times. He uses a phrase that's common. In fact, it's really the theme of the book of Joel, the day of the Lord. In Hebrew, Yom Yahweh. The day of the Lord. He'll use it five times in this book. Twenty-six times in the Bible that phrase is used to speak of something that will happen in the end. What makes Joel unique is that there was something local going on at his time that formed a lens for something that would be global later on. So the local was a lens to view the global. The immediate was a template to view the ultimate. So the day of the Lord is an episode of God intervening in human history to judge. But that would simply be a preview of coming attractions, you might say. What God was doing in judging Judah, the southern kingdom, would be a preview of what God would do on a much broader, grander scale at the end of the age, the day of the Lord. One way to look at it is this. You that wear glasses because you, have, you find that your vision over the years changes. I wear contacts tonight. I wear glasses if I don't have contacts on. And I noticed that my vision the last few years has changed on me. You know, I'm doing this a lot more. And I remember my parents used to do that. And when I started doing it, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, it's beginning. Well, that beginning was a long while back. I'm used to it now. But the glasses that I have are an interesting mix of a progressive lens. They allow you to look toward the bottom of the lens and see something close up, immediate. And then you can lift your eyes up to the horizon, and the top part of the lens lets you focus on something further away. Look at the book of Joel, something like that. In fact, there's a lot of prophecy that will do this. It will show you a close-up, immediate situation. And it's like saying, you see that? Well, look up out into the horizon to the end of the age. Because what you're seeing in the immediate will be multiplied in the ultimate further on down the road. Well, what was happening during that time? An unusual plague of locusts had come into the land, unlike Israel had never seen. And it was a common occurrence in that area to have locust plagues. But this was different. This would be a judgment from God. This judgment from God in the plague of locusts is a harbinger, a preview, a template of something that's coming further along. 
Hosea, let's just get our perspective. We're done with him. But we remember Hosea was the guy that was speaking to the northern tribes. Remember the kingdom is divided. The ten northern tribes, the nation of Israel. The two southern tribes, the nation of Judah. Joel speaks to the very opposite. He's down in Judah because there's mention of the temple, of the sanctuary, of Mount Zion. It's very temple Jerusalem-centric in this book. So we'll begin, and we won't go through every verse, but we'll get enough to make it count. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, Yoel, means Yahweh is God, or Jehovah is God, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? Or even in the days of your fathers? Now he's going to describe a swarm of locusts. An unusual swarm. Never happened like this before. Now as I mentioned, locusts were common and still are in the Middle East. Back in the 1800s, there was a plague of locusts that swept through northern Africa. And it hit the city of Algiers, Algeria, the capital city. Because of the famine that ensued after that plague of locusts, 200,000 people died from the famine. Then in the 1950s, over in Iran, 1951, there was another plague of locusts that hit hundreds of thousands of square miles and decimated every living thing. So it's not uncommon. This was notable. And it's revealed to this prophet that it's part of the judgment of God that is coming, and it's a preview of coming attractions. So has anything like this happened in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. Now, there's a principle in that verse that we've got to see. In the home, truth is transmitted relationally, orally. That's the way God intended it. That's why in the early days of the Hebrew history, schools were at home. They believed in homeschooling. And mothers and fathers taught their children from the earliest years to memorize things, to talk of God's faithfulness, to listen to the stories of the past. In fact, in Deuteronomy, that famous scripture, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. Then the Lord says, And you shall teach these precepts diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit at home, when you walk on the way. It's going to be part of the fabric of your life that you just tell that truth to your children. So, a judgment has come. It's decimated the land. We've never seen anything like it. Tell your children all about it. Because long after this plague is gone, they need to hear about it. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. What the crawling locust has left, the consuming locust has eaten. 
four varieties of insects. Or it could be four stages of insect growth, that one becomes the other, that becomes the other, that becomes the other. We don't know, but there's four stages of decimation. Now just keep that in your mind, because we're going to hit something later on when we come back to these locusts and the end times. So sort of like um, you send out the air strikes, then the infantry, then the artillery, then the mop-up crew, it could be that there's four stages or four varieties of locusts that totally will decimate all of the green things of the land. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. The last harvest of the year in Israel is the grape harvest, the vine harvest. And that's the fall time. So we can conclude that this plague of locusts began to hit around the fall, right around this time, October probably, and it swept through the land of Israel. It affected all of society from the very lowest to the very highest, from the drunk out in the street to the priest in the temple. Interesting that the drunks are mentioned here first. Probably nothing else was getting their attention. Maybe prophets walked by and saw the drunk on the street and said, You know, you ought to get off your booze, man. Okay, buddy, whatever. I love you. But nothing really got that drunk's attention. But now, because the swarm of locusts has decimated the crops, the vine is destroyed, there are no grapes, there is no wine, this drunk can't get his juice, this has his attention. It's all part of God's judgment. Verse 6, verse 7, introduces, we go from locusts, to an army invading the land. What he's saying is that just as locusts came and decimated this land, soon on the horizon, an army, a locust-like army, a decimating army, the Babylonians are going to come in and destroy. Probably the most common locust that was experienced in this part of the world was called the short-horned grasshopper. It's only about two inches long, but its wingspan is between four and five inches wide. They travel in groups, in a cloud. And they'll travel in a cloud, a column that's a hundred feet high and four, five miles long. And it is said that when a swarm of locusts like this comes in, it covers the sun. It looks like a total eclipse. Dark. The land is covered. They're bred out in the deserts. They multiply very rapidly and they move fast. They'll come in from the desert to a green oasis area and complete the, the land, they say, looks like it's been burned with fire, scorched. Strips all the bark off the trees and all the green grass completely wiped out. So 
The call to lament. And you'll see that call later on. Verse 8 and following verses. Go to verse 12. The vine is dried up. The fig tree is withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree, the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament. There it is again. Lament, you priest. So we go from a contemplation of the judgment of the locust to a lamentation because of it. A lamentation because of the judgment of the bugs, but also what's coming with the Babylonians. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. There were seven feasts that Israel was to keep. And all of the feasts that Israel was to keep before the Lord were to be joyful gatherings. In fact, it was a commandment where God said, when you gather together, you shall rejoice. There was only one festival that was kept that was to be the opposite, a time of mourning, sadness, real lamentation. And that was once a year on Yom Kippur. God said, you shall afflict your souls. But that being the exception, all the rest were to be wonderful times of joy, like what we're going to have tomorrow at 10 o'clock. And I've been to Israel on Passover, on Tabernacles, Pentecost, on Israeli Independence Day, and all I can say is that country knows how to throw a party. They're out in the streets. They're dancing those ancient Jewish dancing. They're dances. They're singing loudly. They're making noise several times a year. Love to go to Israel for these feasts. However, because of the judgment, because there's been destruction, there's no joy. It's been withheld. Only mourning and lamentation. I feel sort of sad that over the years, probably until most recent history, People have associated Christianity with either boredom or anything but joy, sadness. I remember telling somebody once, well, what'd you do this summer? And I said, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I become a Christian. And I remember the guy said, I'm sorry to hear that. Like I just made the worst possible decision of my life. But you know, there was a time, even in church history, where it was thought that the gloomier you looked, the holier you were. So the clergy all wore black. And you were taught in church, you don't laugh much. You don't smile much. Because it's a miserable world. No wonder people like Oliver Wendell Holmes saw the ministry and church as so distasteful. He even remarked, I wanted to enter the ministry one time, but all the pastors and ministers I know look and act so much like undertakers, I decided not to join. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote in one of his journals, I went to church today, and I'm not depressed. As if that was an exception rather than a rule. God didn't write those rules. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. It means, oh, how happy. 
There is a joy that we can experience, a rejoicing in the Lord, that should transcend the circumstances of life. Oh, but you don't know how bad I have it. Perhaps not. But you can still rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Well, the joy has gone. Yeah, that is, we should rejoice. Okay, go ahead. Rejoice. You have my permission. But back down to the gloom and the glum. Verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed grain shrivels under the clods, storehouses are in shambles, barns are broken down, for the grain has withered. All right, a few words about the day of the Lord. Don't think of this term, don't think of the experience of the day of the Lord as a 24-hour time period. Like, okay, it begins at this hour and it ends 24 hours later. That's a day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is more of a process, a period of time. It simply means man's day, man's heyday is over and God interjects himself in a radical way. He's now in charge. He's going to let everybody know it. Today is not the day of the Lord. You might say it's the day of man. It's the times of the Gentiles. Man is having his heyday. He's having his foray with autonomy. I make my own choices. I do what I want. I live as I please. That's man's day. But soon is coming the day of Christ. It's a term the New Testament uses four times. The day of Christ is when Jesus will come at the rapture of the church and the church is taken before the Bema seat of Christ. But that will usher in the final day of the Lord, a period of time where God judges this earth radically. It makes the plague of locusts seem like nothing. It makes the Babylonian invasion pale in comparison. It will be seven years, three and a half, the last three and a half, the worst of all of history, Jesus said, from the beginning of time until now, nor ever shall be. That is ultimately the day of the Lord. By the way, more is written about the day of the Lord than perhaps any other subject. Fourteen chapters in the book of Revelation alone, from chapter 6 to chapter 19, go into great detail about the kind of events that will happen in this, the day of the Lord. So here's the prophet looking through his glasses. Way down at the very bottom, the close-up stuff is the, the plague of locusts. Right in the middle, there's that transitional point where he can see a little bit further. That's the Babylonian invasion. And still, the top of the glasses, he sees into the future, and it's the ultimate judgment upon the earth. So we now get into chapter 2. And in chapter 2, the prophet goes from general to specific. Chapter 1 has been generally regarded remarks about God's ultimate judgment, the day of the Lord. Now it's very specific. He's going to give more details about this coming time. As you go through it, as I was going through it today, I was having this thought. The visions of Joel, for that matter, John, who wrote the book of Revelation. If... If Joel was given a vision, 
of modern-day warfare, the kinds of things that will happen toward the end of the age, how would the prophet, giving the tools and the understanding that he had at his day, write about them? How would you describe Apache helicopters shooting out rounds of ammunition or jets or tanks? How would you describe them? Well, if you only knew bows and arrows and sword and fire, those kinds of things, you'd probably describe it using the terminology you had. That's the equipment you have. So let's look at a little of this description. Blow the trumpet in Zion and shout an alarm in my holy mountain. Now the trumpet, you know, the shofar, the ram's horn, was how Israel would give its signals to its people. And there were different tones different lengths of each blowing, and they all meant something different. You might blow it once a certain way, and that meant the leaders would have a convocation together. You might blow it a second time. That would mean all the people in the hearing of it gather together. When there was a tabernacle, you blow it a third time, the east camp moves. You blow it again, the west camp moves. This is different. It's a trumpet of alarm because of what's coming. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been nor will ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, And like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots, over the mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. I don't know if you've ever watched the Nature Channel, National Geographic, when they have their special on locusts. Maybe that's just late at night, I don't know. But if you've ever seen a close-up, View, especially a lateral view of a locust head close up, it strikingly resembles a horse's head. In fact, did you know that there are many languages and the literal translation of grasshopper or locust is little horse? In German, the literal translation of a locust or a grasshopper is horse of the hay. Horse of the hay. You know, that's so German. They have to add so many words together and make it one long. Das ist the horse of the hay. It's some... Because the resemblance of the horse. Now let's play with this just a little bit. Since Joel, what he saw with the plague of locusts that was going to be a template for the Babylonian invasion, that was a further template of what's coming at the end of time. It's interesting that there were, we saw in chapter 1, four varieties of locusts. Consuming locusts, swarming locusts, there's four of them. Four horse-like movements that come upon the land. 
And it's just interesting to me that in Revelation chapter 6, there are four horsemen that come out on the world scene. And you know Revelation has a series of judgments. There are seals that are broken and the the scroll is uh, unfurled and the judgments are read. And the seven seals then bring in another series of judgments. The seven trumpet judgments, the seven bowl judgments after that. But right at the beginning of the tribulation, there's these four movements of horses that come on the scene. And then this description is really odd here. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like swift steeds, so they run with a noise like chariots. Over the mountains they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire. Now this could simply be poetic. It could be just a poetic description of grasshoppers that are coming and these Babylonians have the swiftness like grasshoppers. They can't literally jump, but in a poetic way, that's what it's like. Could be. It could also be portentous of something that's coming further on down the pike. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 9. Let's just see if these two scriptures tie together. Then the fifth angel sounded. Now this is the judgment in the middle of the day of the Lord. The fifth angel sounded. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth and to him. So this star is a personality. He's personified. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, the abuso, the abyss, mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation. Incidentally, when you read that, it's always a place of incarcerated spirits. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Remember the description of the locusts? They travel in columns of 100 feet high, 4 to 5 miles long. They just cover your view of the sun. And out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power as scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So these are very different locusts. These are, you might say, designer locusts. Because most locusts do strip the bark and do eat the green, but not these. These are after men. This place of incarcerated spirits, Second Peter chapter 2, God said He has reserved some in the chains of darkness for a specific time. Now that pit is unleashed. It's opened. And hordes of these hybrid designer, I think they're demons, belched out of hell as part of the judgment of the end. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Now, scorpions aren't always lethal, you know. I've got bitten by a scorpion when I was a boy. It hurts. And you writhe on the ground in pain. You can froth at the mouth. You can get delirious, but it doesn't always kill. So... uh, That's okay. No big deal. Don't worry. It's all right. No big deal. It happens. Okay, let's 
read on in the description. In those days, verse 6, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Now imagine a creature having the sting of a scorpion and the mobility of a grasshopper. And their prey are human beings tormenting people upon the earth. So it's interesting that what Joel saw and said, this is heavy duty, this is a judgment from God. John also, in reminiscent form, says there's coming a plague on the world that's like what Joel experienced but turned up to a hundred. Even far more deadly. So now back to chapter 2 with some of the details. The plagues continue. And down in verse 12, there is a call now to repentance. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. This is one of the most important verses in the book. So rend or tear your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord our God. Return to the Lord, he says. Turn to me with all your heart. It's possible to turn to him with half a heart or really with no heart at all. It is possible. Will you agree? to go through motions of repentance, motions of turning, motions of worship, motions of devotions, but not with a whole heart. That's what Isaiah chapter 1 was all about. The very sacrifices, God said, bring these sacrifices to me and on these feast days. In Isaiah chapter 1, God says, I'm done with it. I've had enough of them. No more sacrifices, no more oblations, no more drink offerings. Because their heart wasn't in it. Like all outward demonstrations of love, it's possible to get caught up in the outward demonstration and not the love. So we can equate the demonstration outwardly with the love that ought to be there inwardly. It's not like God is saying, don't show me outward demonstration of devotion and love, but let it be accompanied with the heart so that your heart's really in it. So turn to me, but with all of the heart. Rend your heart and not just the garments. Now you know, as a show of mourning or as a show of repentance, the high priest would often tear the outer garment. He'd rip it. When somebody died, someone in the household immediately when they heard the announcement of the death would tear the garment. As if to show mourning and lamentation and I'm affected by this emotionally. So here they are going through these yearly motions of repenting, tearing the heart, or tearing the garments, but their heart isn't affected. So God says, if anything's supposed to be broken, it's your heart. Because David said in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and contrite spirit. These the Lord will not despise. Again in verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people together. Let it be a a national time of repentance and mourning. Did you know 
that after the captivity, they eventually went into Babylonian captivity. They returned 70 years later. When they came back, there were spontaneous days where they observed days of fasting. See, they learned their lesson. They said, I don't want to go back into captivity again, and I just feel from my heart that I want to spend this day in prayer and worship and fasting. So they did it spontaneously. But years went on. And by the time we get to the New Testament, we find Jesus denouncing people who are fasting to get praise from men. Remember that in Matthew's Gospel? And when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. And what were the hypocrites doing? The hypocrites put fasting on a weekly schedule. Tuesday and Thursday is fasting day. You can make your choice. What was interesting about Tuesdays and Thursdays in the New Testament is they were the busiest market days. So people sometimes would paint their faces white so they'd look kind of sickly and gaunt. And then they would stand out in the corners where people would gather and have meetings and go to the market. And they would see that Pharisee who's painted his white, his face white, and he looks so sad and he looks so gaunt and he looks like he hasn't eaten. And they go, look, he's fasting. He's so spiritual. No, he's so ungodly. He's so hypocritical. He just wants you to see and think that he's so spiritual. So it is possible to go through the motions and have torn garments and ashen faces and have the heart not even affected. So God is always after the inside. In verse 18, listen to these beautiful promises. We go now from the lamentation to the restoration. Then the Lord will be zealous for His land. Notice, it's not Israel's land. It's not the Palestinians' land. It's His land. He owns it. The Lord will be zealous for His land and pity His people. The Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land. When the Babylonians attacked, they attacked from the north. Number one, because they lived in the northeast and they followed the trade routes and came from the north, from the Assyrian area, and came down and swept through the land. Also, Jerusalem is a city was most vulnerable from the north. The valleys were not deep. The walls were not as high. It wasn't as fortified. So whenever Jerusalem fell, in fact, know this as part of your trivia, every time Jerusalem fell, historically, it always fell from the north and worked its way through the city because it was the most vulnerable part of the city. I will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea, that's the Dead Sea, and his back toward the Western Sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea. His stench will come up. His foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. What does that mean? It means they're going to be defeated and their carcasses will lay on the ground and cause the stench. That's the idea. Now that never happened with the Babylonians. The Babylonians were successful. They took the city, they took the people captive. And they went back to their land. 
However, there is a prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that an army will march from the north, from Magog, the area north of the Caspian and Black Sea, the area of Russia. And several republics join together. Interestingly enough, especially with the world scene today, there will be a coalition of that country with Persia, Iran. And today they are forming an alliance over nuclear supplies. And that great army will come in from the north. God says, I'll put a hook in their jaw and I'll drag them down against the nation of Israel that live in unwalled, peaceful villages. Now, I don't know what the hook that will be put in the jaw of that army that marches down on Israel. I can imagine that it has something to do with the Islamic connection. There's a huge number of Muslims in Afghanistan, Tajikistan, all these stands that are up there, including Russia itself, that are currently serving in the armed forces. They have an avid interest with in the past, Iraq, and today, Iran. They also have an avid interest to see Israel decimated. It could be that that's going to be the hook that brings them down. But if you combine this prophecy and the Ezekiel 38 and 39 prophecy, again, now we're looking at the very top of the glasses, way out into the future. Zechariah says that when the nations gather together against Jerusalem, part of the punishment... And listen to this description. God says, Those nations that gather together against my people, their flesh will melt away and consume away on their bones while they're standing. And their eyeballs will melt from their sockets. An instantaneous disintegration. Sounds very nuclear. Sounds very neutronish. We have those capabilities. It then says in Ezekiel 38, now I'm going from Zechariah 14 to Ezekiel 38, that this northern army that comes down and is consumed and dies and causes a stench, it will take seven months for the Israelis to bury the dead downwind of the Dead Sea in a huge valley. And they will be buried by professional barriers people who are skilled in handling the dead, and once they're buried, a flag will be placed by them to mark the spot. It could have something to do with a nuclear contaminant. If you read the description, and if you're familiar, most of you are now living in this day and age, of the kind of capabilities we have today, it just is an interesting fit. I'm not saying this is all that fulfillment, but you place those things together, looking at the top end of those glasses, And you can see it all coming together. God goes on to say down in this chapter that He'll pour out His blessing like the early and the latter rain, verse 23. Verse 25, So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. Now, I've always regarded verse 25 of chapter 2 as one of the great verses of the Bible, one of the great promises of God. Just look at it one more time, just the beginning. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Whatever barrenness, whatever leanness you have or are experiencing now in your life, 
whatever trials, maybe wasted years have been eaten away, maybe by drug abuse or crime or alcoholism or some um, habit you've been a slave to and years have just wasted away and the enemy has gotten a foothold and says, you're worthless. You'll never get out of this. You'll never escape. You'll never amount to anything. That's true apart from God. That's absolutely a lie when you bring God into the equation. Here is a land that has been decimated by the judgment of these locusts, and God comes in and says, I can restore that. All the years that have been lost, God says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. So, child of God, son of God, daughter of God, whatever age you're at, whatever stage you find yourself in tonight, know this. The future never looked better with God at the center. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, don't have to turn there, take too much time, but listen to this. God anticipates the disobedience of His people that we carried into captivity. And in captivity, they'll say, we've blown it. They cry out to God. God says this, if from there, if from there, You call upon me with all of your heart. I'll rescue you. I'll bring you back. I'll restore you. Where are you at tonight? Oh, my life is bad. From there, call upon the Lord. I've been involved in drugs. From there, call upon the Lord. Oh, I have a bad marriage. From there, call upon the Lord. And God is able to restore and renew the years that Satan, the swarming locust, has taken away. God can do that. I believe that God loves projects. If you would have looked at my life at 18 years of age, some would say, he's a project. He's a a real project. I discovered that God loves projects. You know, God doesn't say, well, this this model of human being isn't very productive. I'm just going to throw him away and I'll create a new one. You know, we get a car and we think, this thing's a year old. There's a new model. And so we opt for the new model or we buy a gadget. You know, computers go out of style every, what, 30 seconds? There's a new model out. And so we're always trying to keep up with it. God likes to take the junk that others would call and make it awesome. As we've said before in previous studies in Hosea, there's nothing sweeter than a 55 or 57 fully restored truck or Bel Air, whatever it might be. You look at it and go, wow, that's gorgeous. God loves to restore, and He does. He promises Verse 28, shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and the terrible day of the Lord. Now Peter quotes this in the book of Acts. 
And yet we know it's speaking about the ultimate coming day of the Lord where there's fire and smoke and judgment and the moon turns red and judgment comes from on high. And yet, when at Pentecost people were speaking in tongues and the leader said, what is this? Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel who said, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Now, if you look at it technically, you might say, Peter, you made a mistake in your hermeneutics. You made a mistake in your interpretation. You don't have the right to take an Old Testament scripture of the day of the Lord and said it's fulfilled here at the beginning of the church age. He didn't say it was totally fulfilled at the beginning of the church age. He was simply being very Joel-like. Just like these locusts are a template of the future judgment, so this outpouring upon these Jewish people in Jerusalem is a template of an ultimate outpouring that will come in the latter times. And it is an outpouring that began at Pentecost and will continue all the way through to the final day, ultimate day of judgment at Armageddon. And don't you ever let people say, well, the, God's going to take the Holy Spirit away at the rapture. Oh, no, He won't. He'll take the church away at the rapture and the Holy Spirit resident inside the church that is the salt and of the earth and light of the world, but His Spirit will be so active during that final seven-year tribulation that a great multitude that receives Christ is under the altar, saved during the tribulation, calling out for relief. God will do an amazing outpouring in those days. So, chapter 3. Let's finish this book up. For behold, in those days, and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, that I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. He was a king, a southern king, and there's a valley named after him. We think it's the Kidron Valley. Some of you have been to Israel, so you've got it in your head. Those who haven't, just on the east side of Jerusalem is a deep valley. And the Valley of Kidron separates the Mount of Olives from the Temple Mount. Some think that's the beginning of the Valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, and they have given a boy in exchange for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Matthew 25 is a chapter that you might want to write in the margin next to those verses. Because Matthew 25 is Jesus' description of God judging the nations, the nations of the world, based upon their treatment of Israel. Now, I don't have time, so I'm going to run through this really quick. There's three groups of people in Matthew 25. Sheep, goats, and brethren. Brethren are the Jewish people. Goats, unsaved Gentiles who persecuted the 144,000 during the reign of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19. Sheep, faithful Gentile nations who treated Israel respectfully and tried to help harbor them and bring them relief during that reign of the Antichrist. Now, sometimes people get the mistake that 
the judgment is a single event. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but it might be surprising to find out how many Christians think, well, you know, we're just sort of going to go on and live, and then there's going to be sort of one end day, the last final day, and all of a sudden there's God judging everybody and playing the films from when you were in grade school and stole the candy that cost 29 cents at the local store, and, oh, now you see the movie, and I'm so ashamed, and you get four lashes for that. That's, that's infantile and erroneous. There are several judgments. Judgment number one is the judgment for your sin that has already passed. It's over. If you're a new creation, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, all things have passed away, all things become new. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me will pass from death into life and will not face the judgment. That's past. Jesus took your sins at the cross. God won't remind you of the candy you took in fourth grade. It's over. Judgment number two is a judgment called the Bema, or the Bema seat of Christ. All Christians, after the rapture of the church, will be rewarded or a reward withheld for how they serve the Lord on this earth. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in the little things. Be Lord over many. Third, there is a judgment for the nations of the earth after Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation period for how they treated Israel. Now it's interesting, this valley of Jehoshaphat. Zechariah tells us when Jesus comes back, he's going to put his foot on what mountain? Mount of Olives. What's going to happen? It's going to break in two. What's going to happen when it breaks in two? He said a great valley will be created and a fountain of waters will flow from Jerusalem all the way down to the Dead Sea. And the waters of the Dead Sea that are now salty and useless will be healed. There will be fish. People will spread their nets, Isaiah said, as far as En Gedi. The Kidron Valley will be a new and improved Kidron Valley made that way by a single footprint. The nations that gathered Armageddon and come toward Jerusalem will be reckoned with right then and there. There will be a judgment of those nations and the nations of the earth. It's possible that, and I hope I'm not confusing you, if I am afterwards, I'm going to be around till the last man drops. So you can ask me any question you want about this. But we know the tribulation lasts seven years. The last part of the tribulation, three and a half, that's 1,260 days. But Daniel describes an extra period of 45 more days. And it could be that that is during the time that the judgment of the nations will take place. Then, after that, there will be a thousand years, Revelation 20 tells us, a millennium, a recreated earth, longevity on the earth, much like the Garden of Eden, all those things restored, a restored earth for a thousand years. At the end of that will be another judgment of all unbelievers. After the thousand years, there's the great white throne judgment. For all those unbelievers that have been kept in the holding tank of Hades will be brought before God, their names not found in the book of life, and that's the ultimate final judgment for the unbeliever. But I've just counted at least four. So it's not one solid date. It depends who you are and where you fall into that lineup. 
Uh, Real quickly in verse 2, just check it out. God is judging nations, and notice what he said about those nations. Whom they have scattered among the nations, they have also divided up my land. I wish we had time to talk about Israel and the Palestinian issue. But for years, Israel has decided we'll give land for peace. And I remember the days when the entire Sinai Peninsula belonged to Israel. And so they said, well, we want peace. So let's give it away. And they gave it away. And guess what? They had no peace. And now they say, well, give us the Golan Heights. And give us all of Gaza. And give us the West Bank. So the land already is divided. And the land is suffering because of the division of the land. Now, it's too complicated an issue, and I could say a few things that it would hurt one side or the other, so I'm not, I'm not going to even go there. I'm just going to continue because we want to finish this book. Verse 9, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Now listen to this. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations. Now doesn't that sound like the exact reverse of Isaiah chapter 2? And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. That's what's written above the doors of the United Nations in New York City today. It's that hope for peace. And the Bible promises ultimate peace. But not until the Prince of Peace comes and sets up shop. And before this, that happens, this is going to happen. Before there's going to be ultimate peace in the Middle East and worldwide, before they beat their swords into plowshares, they're first going to use every implement they can for war, for a total and ultimate destruction. It's unfortunate that too many Americans are so naive about the presence of of evil in this world. And they think, well, you know what? We can negotiate with terrorists. Then you don't understand the mindset of a terrorist. Well, I'm a pacifist. You know what? When Jesus comes, I'm going to be a pacifist. But if you lay your swords down now, history has proven if you take a total non Uh, retaliatory stand, uh, non-involved stand. We're just not going to get involved. There's always a thug with a bigger sword waiting for that to take you over and annihilate you. And that is today presently a real and religious mindset. And it's we're just now starting to awaken to it. Unfortunately, there's too many that are not. And I fear... It could already be too late. Boy, do I sound doom and gloom tonight. (laughs) That's why we've got to end this book. The last verse is the real clincher. Verse 12, Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Same terminology as Revelation 19. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun, the moon will grow dark. All the stars will diminish in their brightness. The Lord will roar also from Zion.
What's the valley of decision? These are nations making that ultimate final decision. Do we side with the covenant that God made with Israel? Or do we side with those like the Antichrist in the end times that wants to annihilate and destroy that people? That's the decision they'll be making and in that valley be ultimately judged. So the sun, the moon, the stars will fall. Revelation 6 describes this. John saw a vision of the stars falling from heaven like the figs that drop in an untimely fashion when the wind blows that fig tree and it is shaken. The stars will fall from the heavens. Remember what Paul said in Colossians, By Jesus Christ all things consist and are held together. One day Jesus will let it go. And when he does, at that end of the tribulation period, when all of the havoc that's been wrecked upon the earth, and then there's that ultimate cataclysm and Jesus comes back. You know, I appreciate the need to be cautious with our environment. But if you think we've trashed our environment, wait till you see what God does with it. In Revelation, He takes His earth and He trashes it. You can read the plagues on your own. And I can just imagine, here's the end times and, and here's these nations making decisions and all these cataclysms and the world whose love is Mother Earth, that's their only hope, is gathering in their ecological summits trying to figure out how they'll save their only hope, their God, Mother Earth. And they look outside, it's already been bad, but all the heavens are shaken and Jesus comes back. Incredible, the day of the Lord. So, verse 18. It will come to pass in that day the mountains shall drip with new wine. See how the, the prophet changes. He looks into the future. He's looking toward the top of the glasses, but he goes kind of way over the top. Now with binoculars looking past all of the de decimation of the tribulation period. The mountains will drip with new wine. The hills will flow with milk. All the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of the Acacias. That's the beginning of the valley of Kedron. Egypt shall be a desolation. Edom or Jordan, a desolate wilderness. Because of the violence against the people of Judah, for they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall abide forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation... For I will acquit them of blood guilt, whom I had not acquitted. For the Lord dwells in Zion. The day of the Lord, as bad as it is, is the door and the ultimate end of that, the result, is the Lord of the day. Who comes? The day of the Lord ushers in the Lord who brings the day back, the blessing, the light. A couple went on a honeymoon. It was late by the time they got to their hotel. They got their key, went upstairs. They thought they were in for a lavish suite, and it was a tiny little room without, without a bed. It was a fold-out couch. And... They were miserable. It's their honeymoon night. They, they don't even have a room. There's no windows in it. 
and there's just a fold-out couch. Well, it's too late. They go to bed. They get up the next day, and the new groom goes downstairs and complains in the lobby. What a rank room. You know how much money we paid for this room? And it's so tiny. Manager looked up at him with a smile and said, Did you open that door? So what do you mean open the door? And the manager took him upstairs. What the groom and bride thought was a door to a closet was the door to the honeymoon suite. They were only in the foyer, the antechamber, that first room of the honeymoon suite. They didn't even open the door and see where it was leading. Bummer to find that out the day after. So this day of the Lord, this horrible time, is like a room without windows. It's hot. It's stuffy. There's only a fold-out couch. It's miserable. But it opens a door of blessing where the Lord reigns from Zion for a thousand years. Well, we covered a lot of stuff and touched on a lot of stuff and probably brought up more questions than we answered. So I'll be around afterwards. Do you have any questions about this eschatological escapade? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this time of year we are so thankful. Not only thankful, Lord, for the blessing that we have, a family and gathering together on a day like tomorrow, the blessing we have of gathering so freely to worship, to pour out our anthems of praise to you, to release whatever burdens have been collected through the day and through the week, and then to study what your plan is for the world. This is what is going to happen. What has happened will happen again in grander fashion. I pray our hearts would be ready. I pray that we would turn to you with all of our hearts and that if there's areas where they need to be broken and rent, that more than just an outward show would be an inward reality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.